1: Hey guys, welcome to episode 125 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Today we have another great episode for you. But before we get into it, we want to thank you for the outpouring of reviews and love that we've received on social media over the last couple of weeks.
2: Yes, and it's been wonderful. And I wanted to just say right off the top that uh, I know I know Kay put a post out there and um, on my John Instagram. appreciation post <laughs> yeah. it was very nice. I appreciate everyone and all the kind words and all the likes that we received. And uh,
1: John was like, oh, they love me. <laughs> they actually like me. I'm like, yes.
2: Well, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes, you know, we, you know, you just it's weird because you put out episodes every other week and, you know, we do so many episodes and you almost lose sight of that sometimes, you know, like, you know, you just kind of like wrapped up in just putting content out, putting content out. And then you realize, oh, my God, everyone actually likes it and enjoys it. Yes. So it's a good feeling. I appreciate it, guys.
1: It's really great to interact with the audience. And everyone is always so amazing. So we just wanted to say we appreciate all the love that you've been sending out to us. It means a lot to us.
2: It does. Thank you, guys.
1: And to help us get the word out, it would be wonderful if you could tell a friend about the podcast that helps always tremendously, or follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter, and that's at, you guessed it, you know, True Crime Couple. So you can find us there. We don't have a Facebook page. It, um, you know, the algorithm was, like, really crazy strange, and it was recommending, like, former students, and I was like, oh, I don't want to play this dangerous game. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah yeah i know it's it's kind of weird how that how that whole thing works it so. connects it so yeah. that's
1: why we're not on facebook but we do have instagram and twitter and uh, also we did not thank patreons at the end of last episode so we're going to do that at the end of this episode and if you recently joined the patreon page where you can get an extra two episodes a month we will be thanking you at the end of this episode and i think that that's That's all. Are you ready to get into this episode? Yeah, let's do it. So our story begins in the small hamlet of Kerhonkson, New York. This incredibly small town is located in picturesque Hudson Valley. It is sandwiched between the Vernoy Kill State Forest and the Minnewaska State Park Preserve in Ulster County. The best thing about Hudson Valley is that although you feel you have gone back in time because you're surrounded by the beauty of untouched pure nature, you're still really only two hours away from Manhattan. And that's why so many people who work in the city choose to live there. The commute can be rough, but it's the perfect escape. And usually when families choose to settle into a little slice of wooded heaven, they feel as if they're safe. There's just something about knowing every single person in your town that makes you feel as if no harm can come to you. And when the population of your small town is around 1,500, it would be completely factual for me to say that everyone truly knew everyone. But we should know by now that nowhere is safe.
0: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not?
1: Lock your doors, lock your windows, if you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The night of March 25, 1996, would be a night to remember. Comet Yakutake was in the night sky, and people across the United States were going to see the closest comet to Earth in decades. On that night, it would be the brightest object in the sky. It was exciting, and people gathered in deserts, on mountaintops, and on street corners. And in small-town 90s fashion, a group of teenage boys planned to gather at a fort that they had built as kids in the woods to drink some beers, smoke some pot, and watch the comet that everyone was talking about. The boys were three 15-year-olds that attended Rondout Valley High School, Joey Martin, Alex Barsky, and Daniel Malik. The three were as thick as thieves, and they were known as a package deal. The three musketeers were what they had been called ever since they got together. Joey and Alex had known each other since they were five years old, and the two met Daniel later on in elementary school. And ever since then, their friendship had been solidified. The plan that night was to meet at the corner of Schwabie Turnpike and Samsonville Road. From there, they would enter a pathway that led to a fort that they had built in the woods, where, when they were kids, they would play, But now as teenagers they would drink beers things were going to be easy for alex and daniel when it came to leaving their homes on a school night but it was joey that was going to have issues not only was it a school night but he was also grounded so he would have to sneak out joey told his friends on the phone that he would be sneaking out once his mom went to sleep he would try and meet them at the crossroads at around 10 p.m but he didn't know for sure what time he would be there so we asked them to wait for him now this seems like a like an interesting like conversion of like donnie darko and stand by me right
2: it's actually funny that you say that cuz i was thinking stand by me yeah 100% it's also funny because when you said round out valley i'm actually familiar with it i've been at that school before uh, we used to play them in football. We used to play them twice a year.
0: Oh, really? Believe it or
2: not, Yeah, So for whatever reason, even though I lived in Orange County, we played another county's football team twice a year. Oh, I, I don't know if it was just like maybe it worked scheduling wise. Who knows? I was a young kid. I didn't really take notice. But yeah, we played them twice a year, and it was the worst football field to ever, like to play really? on. Really? Yeah, because it was not really well maintained, and it was it would just destroy your feet. It was really bad.
1: <laughs> well, it seemed like, well, it's like a regional school where all of these little tiny like hamlet towns all converge and go to that school. So I'm sure like the funding really isn't there.
2: Yeah. But it, but I will say the area around it is really nice. So Well, it's Hudson Valley. So it's, yeah, everything's it's always nice.
1: beautiful. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> so overhearing the whole conversation between the three boys was Joey's older brother, 17 year old Bill. Joey asked Bill if he wanted to come with him to meet up with his friends and watch the Comet. Now, Bill and Joey could not be more different. Joey was outspoken, popular, and a phenomenal track athlete, whereas his older brother was a little bit more reserved, focused on school. And I don't want to say that was like a point of contention between the two brothers, but as you can imagine, like, it must be hard to be the senior at high school, but your, like, sophomore brother is more popular than you. High yeah. school dynamics.
2: You know what it is? In high school, your personality really propels you forward. Yeah. You know, not to say that the other brother wasn't, but when you have a great personality, the teachers like you, your stu- the other students like you, it makes high school a very pleasurable experience when you have a you know, very um, large personality like that.
1: Yeah. It's hard because... Um, those are the students that tend to get noticed most, and it's you know, it does make me like as a teacher. I always kind of gravitate towards the more quiet students and kind of make the class about them because I feel like they get overpowered in most classes. So it is like a typical high school dynamic where sometimes I don't want to say that the squeaky wheel gets the oil, but it's it's the the louder kids that are like noticed where whereas. Sometimes the quieter ones sneak in the background.
2: No, they really do. I mean, (laughs) I remember being in school and there was like one or two kids in my graduating class that I didn't even know who they were. And I had a very small (laughs) class, maybe like 150 kids maybe, if that. Yeah. And it was like two of them that I didn't even know were in my grade. And I
1: think that that was – and not to say like that was necessarily Bill, but Bill was just focused on different things. Joey was like a social butterfly and Bill was a little bit more academic And it was just an interesting dynamic between the two brothers. So that's something that I just want to kind of put out there because it was something that was well known in the school, which was kind of small, even though it's a regional school. But it's small because you're pulling kids from such like a wide area, but there's not a high population because it's very wooded or like someone's property is three acres. So there's going to be less kids in a town. But Bill told his younger brother that he didn't want to go out with him to the fort. But I think that, like, kind of speaks volumes to their relationship, that although they're so different, Joey still does want to include him in things. So Bill is going to say, no, (laughs) you go ahead. But he did remind Joey, like all older brothers would, that he was grounded. So he had to be pretty careful when sneaking out of the house.
2: Can we just... Say this now that that's probably the one thing that we're gonna hate to have to do is to ground our future children. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, well, I'm you're not gonna, gonna, gonna make me to. do
1: all the discipline. I know it.
2: Um, yeah, you're gonna I be might. like, not necessarily all the good stuff. <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna. T- I wouldn't take that away from you, but I definitely, <laughs> I I definitely will let you, um, you know. Especially, like, school stuff, you know? Like, you're going to be the one that's going to be, like, you need to read your book. You have an essay due. You're going to be that person because I won't be able to do that. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'll be the, like, the mystery parent where they don't know whether or not they're going to get yelled at or praised. I don't know.
1: Sounds like you're already building traumatic experiences I, I guess I'm building tra- yeah, <laughs> traumatic – yeah,
2: traumatic – yeah, I don't know. I just – because you know what? I'm. It's going to be difficult to, like know, like, know when to do what.
1: Yes. And I so. and it's a little hard here. Um, We're going to get into the family situation soon. But kind of. Joey's mom is, even though she's married, acting kind of as a single parent in this Um, when it comes to the discipline of her children. So I could imagine that it is really hard. But I mean, he's a teenage boy, so you do need to have certain rules in place and follow through with them, which his mother seems to be trying to do. But. When they sneak out, they sneak out.
2: It's true. And any fathers or mothers out there, got any advice for me? Let me know. I'll write them all down. So that way, when that time comes, I'll, I'll have you know some. worry, John, look you're at. gonna
1: be fine. <laughs> you're gonna be fine. John is so nervous about being a dad. Oh yeah. So Joey Martin had to wait longer than he expected that night for his mother to fall asleep. He was not able to leave through his bedroom window until around ten thirty p.m. He knew his friends had been waiting since 10 p.m., so he had to have been in a hurry. The next morning, Bill waited at a bus stop with all of the other kids that lived near his house. Rondout Valley High School was actually a regional school where all the kids from Kerhonkson went. All of the kids that lived in that town were bused to the high school um, from various bus stops around samsonville road so samsonville road kind of runs the length of the town and kids have stops all along just that one road isn't that funny that is really funny what a small that's so adorable (laughs) so when bill had woken up that morning he realized that joey hadn't come home that night
2: oh no okay
1: so and he knew this because his Everything was kind of still in place in his room. His bed was still made. And Joey wasn't the kind of kid to like wake up and make his bed in the morning. So this wasn't something that was outside the realm of possibilities. And it didn't um, put up red flags to Bill immediately because Joey had stayed out all night before, especially when he was having a few beers with his friends in the woods. So Bill just figured that he would see his brother get on the bus at one of his friend's bus stops because maybe he spent the night at their house. Bill also felt okay because he didn't think that his brother would be missing school because that day Joey had a track meet. And, you know, if you don't attend school the day of a sporting event, you can't compete in that sporting event. So he knew that Joey would be there and that kind of calmed his nerves a little bit. And as Bill sat on the bus, he fully expected to see Joey get on at the next bus stop with his friend Alex. But when Alex got on the bus alone, Bill was very confused. He asked Alex if Joey had stayed the night at his house. And Alex, confused, told him no. In fact, Joey had not met up with them at all that night. They'd been waiting at the intersection of Schwabie Turnpike and Samsonville Road until 11 p.m. And Joey never showed
2: up. Well, that to me is a red flag, right? Because now you have his friends and his brother have no idea where he is. Yeah. And all very uncharacteristic for him.
1: And this means that he's already been missing for a good amount of time because he left at 10.30 p.m. from the window. They were waiting there till 11 p.m., Something had to have happened to Joey after ten thirty when he got out of that window. We don't know what, and he's now been missing an entire night.
2: For, for like, for example, it's a half an hour between the time he leaves the his window and where uh, where his friends are waiting for him.
1: Well, the friends never see him, but it means that because they were there till eleven p.m., it means that something must have happened to, to Joey. On his way there, he never makes it.
2: Yeah, I think when police get involved with this, which I'm sure it's about to happen, um, that's going to be um, a point of contention, like where, like from, like the time he left the window to, like, like how far, how long it would take to get from the window to the friends to meet up.
1: Yeah, and the distance from Joey's house to this intersection where all the boys were supposed to meet is a mile and a half.
2: Yeah, because like you would think it wouldn't take that long. But now you have to factor in, okay, is there a road? Could he have been picked up by a car? Um, You know, things like that.
1: Could he have been hit by a car? Right,
2: exactly. Maybe there was a hit and run and the person just, you know, you know, it's a lot of things that could happen here.
1: But it's crazy.
2: And it's woodsy too. Like you could get hit by up there. You can get hit by a car, you know, the person could keep going and you could just like kind of roll down into like an embankment or whatever. It's the woods. Yeah. You You know, everyone has to understand it. It is a very densely wooded area. Right. Most of it. Most of it.
1: A lot of places yeah. to hide a body. If you need 100%. to. 100%. Joey's mother, Kathleen Martin Lightstone, was informed first by the school that Joey was not present in school. And later by her son, Bill, who had no idea where his brother was. And this is, that makes me happy because it drives me absolutely insane when children go missing and they're not reported missing by their school. Like, if a child is not present in school and a parent doesn't call, it's common practice to immediately call the parents and see, like, where is your child? They weren't called out of school. So it is nice to see that the proper (laughs) protocols
2: were followed by the school. That's true, right? Because what year is this, 97? 96. Yeah, like, so I would imagine that that's protocol, that's been protocol for a very long time among among all districts not really
1: no yeah this is something that is new um starting in like the in the 90s we start to you know go forward with this whole like stranger danger thing and like where are our kids and you know it's 10 p.m do you know where your kids are kind of accountability of making sure that kids are are cared for and accounted for and that's when it becomes common protocol within schools
2: no, not to put blame on anybody, but you would think though, right, that that is a practice that was always in effect, right? Because essentially when you ha- when you have a child, in no the matter, no matter the age, right, you're leaving that child in the care of the of the school. Yeah. You know, and like the school knows that the kid is on their way or should be on their way. So it would make sense to make sure that the child they is get okay. There. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. No, I completely understand. <laughs> you know, and that's
1: why protocols have been yeah. changed. But it used to be so easy to, like, skip school. That's true. And now it's so hard for kids to skip school.
2: Well, yeah, because you have, like, the truancy officer Oh, it's and all virtually impossible. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so confused and trying to catch up with all that had already happened, because you have to think poor Kathleen is, like, coming in. Her son kind of already knew that Joey snuck out. Like, she's trying to... Be like, oh, my God, my son snuck out last night. He never returned home and he didn't go to school. She's trying to like fathom all of these things all at once. So it was a lot to take in. And she figured that the best thing that she could do at the moment before she went and called the police would be to call the parents of every friend she could think of. And this is because Joey did have a history of leaving the house in a huff, spending the night at a friend's house kind of just to cool off, so she prayed that this is what had happened now. But no one had seen Joey the night before or that morning, nor did any of the children say that they had even spoken to Joey. Kathleen and Joey's siblings, his older brother Bill and his younger sister Emily, have stated that even though Joey would often leave to spend the night somewhere else, he would always phone so his mother knew that he was safe. They always knew where Joey was so this was out of the ordinary. Once it was confirmed by all of those who were close to Joey that no one knew where he was, Kathleen called the New York State Police to report her son missing. She also called her husband, Joey's stepfather, who spent his weeknights in the city where he owned a store with his father. She needed him to come home and help her with this unthinkable tragedy. State troopers were pretty adamant with Kathleen and her husband, Lance, that they felt as if Joey was not missing, but rather he had run away or was staying out and would return. Now, this is, it's unfortunate because when your child goes missing, you do want to give 100% truthful and accurate information to the police so they could have a better understanding of your child and what the dynamics are but here them being truthful to the police is actually hindering the investigation because they said joey does you know get mad he gets into fights with his stepfather he doesn't like that we're trying to have rules because he's 15 years old and that's what a normal 15 year old boy would do but because those things had happened they're saying oh he's just doing that again and he's considered a runaway.
2: Yeah, it's almost like a a form of a cop out, you know, w- you know, where it's it's easy just to say, listen, he's not missing. There's no need for immediate action. He's done this before, he'll return and you know, there you go. You know, they're they're gone. They're not going to do anything. Right. This whole uh situation reminds me of stranger things in the first season. You know, um crazy. Um and that was frustrating too.
1: It really is how a lot of disappearances go where they say, okay, if there's a history of a child walking away and staying with a friend, then maybe that's what they did. And I can only imagine how frustrating this was for Kathleen and her husband, Lance, because they know that this isn't Joey. Joey would leave, but then he would call when he got to a friend's house and she's called all of his friends. She called every place he would go to and he wasn't there. So they were trying to explain that this is out of the ordinary and there was no big fight. So there was no reason for him to leave. But the state police tell her to wait another day.
2: Yeah, we've seen that, right? It's so frustrating that that is the response. Right. I could understand if like certain things need to be. Always investigated, right? But to wait another day, that one day is going to make investigation even like 10 million times harder.
1: 100% because those first 48 hours are crucial to an investigation, especially disappearance of a child uh, from what we know now. So the fact that they said, let's wait during the most crucial times of this disappearance to even like start paperwork that he's missing.
2: I mean, listen, you have a very very small window to organize a search party, to get the word out. Like it's a very small window. And I think that when you're dealing with a kid, he's 15. Okay. Even if he left due to a fight with his mom or whoever, that doesn't make this in this case, it doesn't make sense because he would have gone to a place of comfort
1: he would have went to his two he best friends' went his, house. Right.
2: He would have went to his friend's house. He would have went to someone familiar. For him not to be at any one of those locations and not have returned home and not be at school. Yeah, especially because he had a track meet. Exactly. These are red flags, all of it. Like, literally, I'm sitting here putting red flags on everything I can. It's a lot of red flags. Because, literally, littered the floor. It's all over the place. Because this... Like we said earlier, it's uncharacteristic. This is not normal. So because of that, the police should be like, okay, like even though he's left before, usually he's found at places of comfort. Correct. This is not the case. So a search party and things should be happening now.
1: And when it would happen, I mean, like there's a multitude of different reasons that this strays from the typical runaway, if that's what we want to call it, of Joey Martin He has a track meet that day, so he would never miss a track meet, so he wouldn't miss school. When he would go stay at a friend's house, he would always call his mother. And he would only do that after a fight with his stepfather, who wasn't even home because he spends the weeks in the city and the weekends home only. So it, it just it doesn't make sense. But still, we're waiting another day.
2: Yeah, I would have that whole entire main road that main stretch of road that goes through the town at least if the parent has any sort of like concern okay he might have been on that road when he left through you know went out the window check that road what's the harm in just sending out one state trooper to go down that road and just comb through it real quickly.
1: Nope, I agree with you. Or,
2: or whatever, take your time even, whatever. Just go up and down that main road. At least you know the main stretch of road off to the sides. That way you're putting the mother at ease to say, okay, he wasn't hit by a car and left there.
1: Right, just look. he's not injured and still alive. Right,
2: just look. Like, that's all it takes. There's
1: no harm in just looking.
2: No harm in that.
1: Okay, so before we get into what's going to happen with the investigation moving forward, we're going to take a break here and talk about our first sponsor of the show.
0: In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, let's get back to the show. So where we left off, the Martin Lightstone family was told by law enforcement that they should wait 48 hours to report their 15-year-old son, Joey Martin, missing. In that time, the family continued to call all of the friends of Joey, And their family members to see if anyone had heard from or seen Joey. But no one had. They tried to search the vast woods, but with limited resources that proved to be a difficult task. So see, the family actually took it upon themselves to search the stretch of road that would have taken them from their house all the way to these crossroads.
2: Yeah, I I don't agree with that should be something that the police should do. But... You know, I, I, you know that's the best thing that you could do, right? Yeah. Because what are you gonna do? You're gonna sit in at your house, just like sitting there in your own thoughts, panicking. You know.
1: Yeah, I feel like if your child's missing, you the first thing you want to do is do something. Like you want to physically be doing something because you feel helpless if you're just sitting.
2: It's definitely a, a means of like, like, like it's an outlet. For, for the person that's grieving through this or like trying to figure out what, where is my kid? I'm physically yeah. doing
1: something so it makes them feel better.
2: It kind of takes the focus off of it almost somehow. I don't know.
1: So finally, the window of time had passed that law enforcement wanted the family to wait. And a frustrated, grief-stricken Kathleen made an official report to the state police. The first step of the investigation is a formal questioning of Bill Martin, Joey's brother and the last person to speak with him. Bill told the detectives the same thing that he told his mother and the dozens of people that had asked him in the past two days. He heard Joey on the phone with his friends, and then Joey asked him if he wanted to go hang out with them to watch the comet. He had turned his brother down, something that I'm sure is very painful for him to recall. And then he saw the boy leave out of his window at around 10.30 p.m., minutes after their mother had gone to bed. Once Bill was questioned, the rest of Joey's family went through an interrogation. Their first goal was to understand the family dynamic and then branch out from there. As happens in most investigations, no one's words are taken at face value and everyone, especially the family, is considered a suspect. Detectives had learned through the questioning of the rest of the family immediate and slightly extended that bill and joey had two totally different personalities joey had been very outgoing and popular detectives working the case created a theory at first that surrounded the involvement of bill martin had he actually agreed to go with his brother to the rendezvous location but the two never made it because they'd gotten into a fight or maybe bill was super jealous and just saw an opportunity to attack his brother. So that was the kind of first working theory that detectives had.
2: I mean, I think that one hits a little close to home, right? I mean, imagine yeah. that your your mom finds out that you, <laughs> you're uh, a possible suspect in your, in you know, in the other kid's right. disappearance. I don't know. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's, I think it's too early to say, hmm, because of popularity of your younger brother, you would, you know, you would harm him in some form.
1: Yeah, I think that just family is always suspected in these things, but also because Bill was the last one to kind of talk to Joey, and he's the one who said, you know, he was just leaving, and it could have been him, but Bill is easily, like, taken off the suspect list pretty quickly because not only did what he said Joey's phone conversation was, it was corroborated with his friends, Daniel and Alex. Like they said no, we did have that conversation, so Bill wasn't lying. Joey was going to meet up with his friends, and then their younger sister Emily saw Bill in the house after 10:30. So he couldn't have went with.
2: Oh, the his sister. Brother, the sister, the of, sister Okay, okay. Okay, so we know that he we, we know that he didn't leave the house. Correct. The older brother. Yeah. Okay. But that
1: was the first working theory.
2: Did they investigate the friends as well
1: oh yeah because that's the next people who are questioned because they they first question the friends because they're going to because that was the plan for joey to meet up with them that night and to kind of get to know joey outside of his family dynamic they question the friends but alex barsky and daniel malik are going to say everything bill said was correct they were supposed to meet at the crossroads and they both confirmed in their interviews with police that joey had told them before they hung up bill didn't want to come with them that night and you know this kind of confirms bill's story verbatim so it really is the sister emily and joey's friends that save bill from this suspicion, which is good because now we have investigators focused on what's really happening versus theories. And it just so happens that the two stories from the friends were also confirmed. Several witnesses came forward once the police issued a statement saying they were looking for people that had been driving in the area the night of the disappearance. Two separate motorists corroborated the story of Alex and Daniel, who said they were waiting on the corner of schwabie Turnpike and Samsonville Road between 10 p.m. and 11 that night. Several drivers said they saw two boys who looked like they were waiting. Okay. So basically the timeline of the missing person is very clear in this case. Detectives know that Joey left his home at 10.30 p.m. and he never reached his friends at the crossroads. This led them to two theories. First, something had happened to him in the mile and a half between the route from Joey's house to the meeting spot. The second theory was that Joey, remember this is the age before cell phones, figured that his friends were no longer waiting for him because it had taken so long for his mother to fall asleep. So he decided to just take one of the many pathways to the fort through the woods behind his house, in hopes that they would be there waiting for him. Versus at the Schwabie Turnpike intersection, and there's several different paths he could have taken, and he could have maybe hurt himself and still been in the woods, or came into contact with somebody in the woods.
2: I mean, yeah, that's a possibility. I I think that would you know what would help, probably to get like an accurate like if you were walking a distance of how long it would take to go from the window to the road where they were meeting at the spot and then how long it would take to go from the spot to that fort in the woods. And then also how long it would take for the other two boys from where they live to get to the fort or to the road. Right. Because even though there's eyewitness testimony that says that they were there waiting for him at, uh, between ten and eleven, there's still a the gap there. So I want to know how. Like, could it be possible? Like, I, like you know, if we can get a time frame, how long it would take for them to get there, then we would know for for a fact that they were there at that time. Because eyewitness testimony could be weird. I mean, like you could be driving your car and you think it was around. Oh, oh uh, yeah, I was driving on that road around nine thirty. I totally agree. Ten o'clock could really be nine forty five. Right. You know, it, like, and that could mean.
1: The difference, the difference yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of factors that are kind of unknown in that because a we don't know the route Joey took. Did he think, okay, it's a little bit later? I get i I bet the guys aren't waiting there anymore. Let me go straight to the fort. So we don't know if he took the road or he took the fort. We also know that Joey is like this track athlete, so he thinks he's late. He might be like booking it there, That's, or he yeah, might true. be casually walking. We don't know. So the factors with Joey are unknown. What we do know is that um, the fort is located about 100 yards from the house of Daniel Malik, one of the two friends. But it made sense for them to meet at the intersection of of Schwabie Turnpike and Samsonville Road because that's where there's like this path that leads into the woods that will take them to the fort, and it's a convergence of where all the three of them
2: live. Okay. All right, that makes sense. Yeah.
1: So because his mother had fallen asleep later than expected that night, they were nervous that he was trying to make up time. And because of that, it might have caused his disappearance. Like maybe he was running and got hit by a car, or he tried to hitchhike and someone picked him up or he was running through the woods, fell, and injured himself. There were so many possibilities, and after 48 hours of being missing, none of them were good. A physical search of the woods and the fort and the journey Joey would have taken, whether he took the road or the woods, was searched. Early on in the search of the area, law enforcement had found broken pieces of headlight on the side of a road, almost like kind of into the wooded area, That flanked both sides of the road and within the pieces of glass, they found some blood and hairs. So this was something they feared, like maybe it was a hit and run. So they had the pieces of glass tested, like the hair and the blood, and it belonged to a raccoon, not a person. Okay. So at least that wasn't him. Now that the police are involved, a larger scale search is conducted. The state police were aided by over 800 volunteers, which really equated to half of the town coming out and looking for Joey, a testament to the kind of boy he was. Citizens and the police were also aided by local search and rescue and the fire department. But the search of the woods near his home and the route he would have taken if he just stuck to the road yielded nothing. Because there was nothing physical to go on, the detectives wanted to continue talking to the family to make sure that nothing was amiss with them. In addition to learning about the jealousy that existed between the two brothers, they also learned that Joey was very vocal about not liking his stepfather. In fact, he always had been. Joey's father had died seven years prior in a roofing accident, leaving behind three children and a wife who had all been devastated by their loss. Eventually, Kathleen married a family friend, Lance Lightstone. From the beginning, Joey was very vocal about how he did not like Lance, and as he got older, his hostility for Lance grew. Now, like I said before, the living situation for the family was not entirely conventional. Although Hudson Valley is close to New York City, it's a rough commute to do every day, and it can be expensive. So to run the business that Lance owned with his father in the city, he stayed at an apartment in Manhattan Monday through Thursday, and he would return Thursday night back home. So I bring this up because it added to the tension in the house. Joey didn't want to follow his stepfather's rules, especially a stepfather who was only home three days out of the week. And this conflict that Joey had with Lance did put a lot of pressure on the family. His siblings and mother confessed to law enforcement in the many times they were questioned. But the way Joey's mother put it was that Joey and Lance loved each other. It was just a hard time because Joey was a teenager and teenagers really never see eye to eye with the people that are trying to show them the right way or punish them as teenagers feel.
2: Also, at that age, to lose a parent in such a like a sudden way like that, I'm sure could really affect their next couple of years.
1: Oh, totally. You
2: know, so that's probably why he's not totally accepting of his stepfather, not because of the way he might tell him to like, you know, these are the rules. It's also because he misses his father probably and doesn't want to fully embrace him.
1: Yeah, I agree with you.
2: I mean, there's, there's also that.
1: This conflict that Lance and Joey had was something that law enforcement wanted to look into. Could Lance have driven back from New York City, hurt Joey, and then returned to the city? It was physically possible, and it was potentially a really good alibi for him to have. When the detectives questioned Lance about his relationship with Joey and what he had been doing the night of the disappearance, he got very defensive As the questioning went on, he became irate as he learned that he was being considered as a suspect. Lance refused to work with police as soon as he knew they were, like, starting to suspect him, which only built up their suspicions. And with no physical signs of Joey and no clue as to what could have happened to him, word quickly spread around the small town that Joey's stepfather was a prime suspect. Kathleen supported her husband and was very clear in her message that she didn't think Lance was responsible for her son's disappearance. Lance's defensiveness and Kathleen's defense of him actually led a lot of people in town to not support her. Like, the court of public opinion was that Lance was involved.
2: See, I understand, like, where the people on the outside of the family might feel that way, right? Like, your your son's missing your your husband could be a, a a suspect why are you supporting him and not you know defending your son who's who could be dead who could be you know whatever right but i mean just because it's possible to reach round out valley um you know from new york city in in a, in, a, in an average time i mean yeah sure but that doesn't mean they did it
1: well i feel like it would also be like really difficult because how would Lance know that Joey was even leaving the house that night? Not
2: to mention, even in nineteen ninety six, there are going to be timestamps as to when he went through tolls.
1: Well, not if he paid cash. Uh, which everyone did in nineteen ninety
2: six. Yeah, I, I, I'm. I'm pretty. Yeah, but you know what though? There's cameras though at those transits uh, at those transit hubs when you go through a toll. There's in nineteen
1: ninety six though. I feel I... like we're too young to know that.
2: Well, I'm, okay. I mean I don't know for a fact but I would just i would say at the main at the main crossings you probably have cameras
1: and where they'd have to go over the tap and say is that the way they would take
2: i mean where would they take uh, uh that's kind of George hard. Washington they would probably take the GW so that's a major that is one of the busiest bridges in the entire United States there are definitely cameras there like there's no way there's not even in 1996 I mean the quality might not be that great but they probably they had to have existed.
1: Yeah, it said – okay, so I Googled this. There were some cameras on the George Washington Bridge, but they weren't, you know.
2: I'm sure there was at good. least one or two at the Toll Plaza as well. Yeah. Because you have to – even if you're paying cash, you have to GW Bridge. You know, people could just keep going and just not pay. How are they going to get these people? They, right. they get no, their I license plates. So there's a timestamp, even in
1: 1996. Or – and. You would talk to like that was back when there was physical people there at the toll booth. So yeah, there's did a they way remember to,
2: Yeah, there's a way to get a good time estimation if he could make it up there by the time he leaped out that window. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, so I like, know. I, but he would
1: have to know he was leaving.
2: That's what I'm saying. It makes it even that much more not possible, <laughs> you know.
1: Unless he was like, Oh, I'm coming back and then he sees Joey walking on the street. But these are all Like, so many what-ifs would... Like, so many things would have had to fall into place properly for it to have been Lance. So...
2: Well, that's why I'm saying, even though it's possible to make it there in a sufficient amount of time... It's
1: improbable. Exactly. So, it was just hard for Kathleen to hear, like, you're supporting the person who murdered your son, and it was a very difficult time for the family... And very quickly, actually, within a week, the New York State Police were able to definitively prove that it could not have been Lance. Okay. Because on the night of the disappearance, Lance had made two phone calls on the landline from his apartment in New York City, obviously. And the people he spoke to, it was like two business calls, business related calls, they occurred between 10 o'clock and and 10:30 p.m., so it confirmed that Lance uh, Lighthouse was, so it confirmed that Lance Lightstone was in New York City when Joey's disappearance was taking place. So there you go. Yeah, so Lance's alibi had been confirmed, and this just really confirmed everything that Kathleen had been saying. Lance loved her children. It was just a difficult age for Joey, and she knew that something was like really wrong here.
2: Yeah, and, you know, I'm also disappointed in the entire community uh, for the ones that did that. because For turning against her. Seriously, like, they're they're the ones going through this, not you. You just live in a town. So how dare you put that kind of judgment on her while she has a child missing? Very, very rude.
1: Very rude, very small-town politics. Very small-town
2: politics, yeah.
1: So after ruling out the family's involvement with the disappearance, the investigators focused their resources outward. As is routine with missing children's cases, they cross-checked the area for sex offenders that had a predilection for teenagers. There was only one man in the area that kind of met that criteria, but it could not have been him because he had an airtight alibi that was confirmed by many people. So again, now they're finally branching out, but they're not having a lot of success.
2: You know what would be really good here? To go next, you're a teacher. You know a school will give you all the inside information, the inside track. So they should be going to the school and talk to every single kid because if he was the popular one, people are going to know stuff.
1: And you know what's so funny? They do end up doing that in the investigation, but not right away. Okay, okay. But it's true. Yeah. So like where that's all where he, the information yeah,
2: is. like, was anybody jealous of him that he was popular? Did someone, mm-hmm. did one of his friends not like him a hundred percent? Were there bad blood, or, or did he not? You know, who didn't he get along with? These are all things that you could find out just by going yes. to the school.
1: There is nothing. Nothing is secretive in high school. Nothing. Nothing. Not even among the faculty. I promise <laughs> oh, you. <geez. laughs> okay. So we're going to take a break here and talk about our second sponsor of the show. So on April 4th, the investigators thought they should go to the fort in the woods that would have been the final destination of the teenagers that night. And when they got there, they saw that the fort was really just a tarp with plywood and a little bit of metal, but it was like just kind of a small shelter that created a little bit of privacy for teenagers. You know, fort was a very generous term. In doing the research on this case, I've also heard it called like the cabin in the woods. But like when you've seen pictures of it, you're like, oh my God, how did anybody call this a cabin? It was just like, you know, in your mind as a kid, you build it up like, oh, the fort, the fort. But it's really nothing. It was
2: it's like, a, it's like a, a little
1: enclosure made yeah. of plywood and tarp. That was it.
2: It's a little survival hut. <laughs> yeah, it was really, it's really funny. Yeah.
1: But there was really nothing that would indicate anything bad had happened there. The only thing they found were empty beer bottles. So it seemed as if there was no foul play at the fort, but they did have questions about how young teenage boys had alcohol so readily available to them. The detectives questioned Alex and Daniel again to ask them where they got their alcohol and their drugs from. And they said it was an older kid that they knew, Christopher Brown. Now, Chris was an 18-year-old neighbor of Alex Barsky. And that's how they got connected with him. But then I'm like thinking, okay, hey, Chris had to have connections, too, because he's 18 and he can't even get alcohol. Yeah, but like. So who's the bigger guy here?
2: Well, let's be real. I mean, I when I was in high school, I used to walk right into the, the gas station, grab a pack of 24 and leave and just pay and leave at like 17. You just so confessed so to a crime. I did. I did. But that's Okay. But what I'm is saying it okay, is okay, John? It's not okay, but what I'm saying is that is of, it's commonplace. <laughs> it's like they don't look at it the same way they do like in the city. It's they don't do that. I'm not gonna say where, obviously, but that but that's um that's just something that is very common up there.
1: Yeah, I guess it's true. You also did have a mustache by the time you were ten years old. That is so. true.
2: And a beard. Yeah, yeah. A, <laughs> a serious beard, yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it was pretty pretty traumatic having the uh Sanchez at like you know in sixth grade. But um <laughs> anyway, let's not talk about those years.
1: Okay, I'll I'll post a picture.
2: No, please don't.
1: It's one of my faves.
2: No, don't you don't you dare. That one's bad. I don't want people to see okay, that. Okay, okay, okay. Um but all joking aside though, I mean it's really not out of like it's I know to some like of our listeners it's gonna be weird, but you know, in some places, it's like it's like the seventies again. So They're maybe, just looking for the sale. You know. So
1: maybe this guy, this um, his name is Chris Brown.
2: Okay. Um.
1: Yeah. Chris, Chris Brown has a connection of a place where he usually sure. like, buys beer. They things. might even, okay. you know, they, you, know you
2: toss him another five, ten dollars on top of what it costs to buy, and they will just take it. No, I got it. Yeah. So. so
1: Chris was well known to law enforcement because he had a pretty long rap sheet. He had committed many criminal offenses, and he was known to have a pretty serious drug habit. When they went to go look for Chris, they realized that those close to him didn't know where he was. He was missing, too. He hadn't been heard from in days.
2: That is a little suspicious.
1: Yes. So the troopers issued a statement that they were looking for Chris because he was wanted for questioning regarding the disappearance of Joey Martin. And everyone in the area knew about the disappearance of Joey Martin. So a lot of people are going to now be looking for Chris Brown. (laughs) That sounds funny saying it. So eventually someone reached out to them to let them know that the last time they had seen Chris, he had told them that he was leaving the area in a stolen U-Haul truck and was headed to Florida.
2: Also a little weird.
1: Yes. So this is interesting. So the person who provided Joey and his friends with alcohol and occasionally pot decided to leave town abruptly as soon as Joey went missing. That's a pretty interesting coincidence.
2: Uh, I mean, it is 100%. I just, um, I would want to make sure that we don't, like if I was the police, if I was someone that was leading this investigation, I just would make sure that we don't get so caught up in this. Where it's it's you know, we don't want the horse blinders on one track mind here, mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's a lead. Yes, it's weird that that's what he told somebody, and that he was the one that provided the the al- you know the alcohol and the drugs, but what we don't know is did he maybe get into the wrong uh, in with the wrong people and that's how he was able to get drugs in the first place? Maybe he owes somebody money, so they're leaving town. like there's lots of different things that could have nothing to do with uh Joey's disappearance.
1: No, those are all really strong probabilities. Like, any of that could have happened.
2: Also, I want to add that, you know, I'm not saying that I was involved in, like, a, like the scene. But, like, you know, relating to back when, like, we were in high school, like, we knew the kids that could get the drugs, right? We knew the kids that were able to get the alcohol, right? right? Yeah. The person that has the drugs and can get the alcohol, they become... Instantly, like, the the number yeah, one person. Well,
1: and there's a reason they do it. It's, like, the younger right. kids. So, like, not only do they have that, but there's also, they have these, like, minions of True. followers.
2: Sure. But now, to go off that even further, that person that gave them the drugs and alcohol leave, right? hmm Now, the kids that got the alcohol and the drugs, they're going to be like, oh, that's mine. Oh, oh, make sure you share that. Oh, you know, like like, it's like, it becomes like... Something to hold on to. Like, it's the holy grail. Like, you know, oh, make sure you keep that safe. Don't lose it. Don't smoke too much. Don't drink too much of it. It can cause an issue amongst the people that just bought it or just got it. So
1: getting the drugs, once you've acquired it, could cause chaos amongst the lower ranks, you're saying.
2: Exactly. And now, could this be the case now? Could this have something to do maybe with this kid's disappearance? Because we have two kids that were there waiting for him. Are they not telling the full story? Was it because of the drugs and the alcohol that they were provided that caused some sort of fight?
1: That does always cause tension of like, did you smoke more than me? Did you drink more than me? I've literally
2: been in like... Like, shady places, like, you know, like, whether it be in the woods or at someone else's house. And, you know, they're like, yo, yo, pass that, you know, pass that, give me that. And then they'd be like, yo, you had the whole thing. Why'd you smoke the whole thing or whatever? You know, it and happens. then all of a sudden it starts a shouting match and then you never know. It could lead to physical altercations. Okay. So, with that being said, this could be the catalyst of why this kid's disappear, uh, you know, has disappeared.
1: Because you're saying that Chris knew that something bad went down with the kids he gave drugs and alcohol yeah, to. Yeah, and now
2: he's gone. Okay. Yeah.
1: Interesting. I maybe mean, okay. it's,
2: it's a possibility.
1: Right. So the police asked the family if for any reason they thought that Joey might have went willingly with Chris to Florida. Uh, like, would he yeah. have wanted to go on a road trip or a joyride? Because, you know, maybe they had a big fight or something, or he was upset about being grounded. And again, the family just felt like they had to be on the defense here. They were adamant that Joey would never have left to just take a ride to Florida, which would have taken days because he just wouldn't have done that. It was track season and he loved track. Another thing that showed that Joey didn't intend to go somewhere for a long amount of time was that he had left behind his favorite jacket and his wallet. So if he was planning on going with Chris to Florida, he would have brought that stuff.
2: Put it this way if it was willingly, he would have had a wallet, a change of clothes.
1: But it could not have been willingly, maybe. Well,
2: that that's a well that's a whole other thing. But to say that he went willingly, I doubt that highly.
1: Right. No, you I need agree. clothes,
2: you need your toothbrush, you need you need your wallet, you need money. Like, to do that with nothing?
1: No, I completely agree. Now, they only needed to wait a few more days to find out any information on Chris Brown. Because after an APB was put out on the stolen U-Haul truck, it was spotted 22 miles north of Kerhonkson in the town of Kingston, New York. Isn't that interesting? So he didn't go to Florida. He went to Kingston. And you know what I was thinking here? And this might be a stretch. Maybe the people who were writing the report, like, writing the reports up aren't familiar with the area. Was he saying he was going to Florida, New York?
2: Oh, oh wow. Okay. Because you, you, yeah. Florida is yes. a town
1: in Orange County. Yes. Which is still in the Hudson Valley area. Like, was he saying, I'm going to Florida? Like, did he mean the town? Because he stayed in New York. Or was he trying to get people off his tail by saying, I'm going to Florida, but he's actually going north instead of south? I don't know.
2: All of those are possibilities. Lots of possibilities. Yeah, we just don't know.
1: So an attendant at a gas station noticed the U-Haul that the police had been looking for in connection with the disappearance of the teenage boy. And in fact, the attendant saw a boy who looked like he was in his early 20s, who turned out to be Chris, with a blonde haired boy. And that solidified it for them. So they called 911 because Joey Martin is blonde. So law enforcement arrived at the scene immediately. They seized the stolen truck in which they found a lot of drugs and they arrested Chris on drug charges. But they were let down when they found out that the attendant had just seen it wrong. There was no blonde teenager with him. That had been someone from another car. But it doesn't negate the fact that Chris still left town right after the disappearance of Joey. The disappearance of a boy that he usually sells drugs and alcohol to. So, like, that is shady. So, could he have convinced Joey to go with him and something happened? Chris insisted that Joey had never gone with him, and he didn't know what happened to him. Investigators didn't believe him, though. He had a very shaky alibi, and everything he had done after the appearance had been shady. So they had a forensics team comb through the U-Haul to see if DNA of any sort could be found in the vehicle belonging to Joey. And it turned out that Chris had been telling the truth because no trace of Joey could be found anywhere in the vehicle.
2: Yeah, and you know what's crazy, though, too? I mean, you think about a U-Haul van everyone uses them or box truck whatever it was everyone uses them someone could easily cut their finger or whatever there would be i mean i'm, I'm glad that there wasn't cuz now we're on the right track but that's kind of a hard thing to test i would imagine as a forensic person because there's so many fingerprints that there could there's be anything there's a lot anything. of dna in yeah, there yeah cuz the truck's always being used and then brought back and then sent back out with other people so
1: right and nothing of Joey's was Found in there. I mean, they did like with tape, they literally picked up every hair, skin cell, every they swabbed, everything, fingerprints. They
2: it's a good move, though. I mean, it's definitely good, it's good, it's a good insurance policy to make sure that he wasn't in that back of that truck.
1: Totally. So, after this, weeks went by with no progress made on the case, which, as you can imagine, was taking a toll on the family. They did everything they could to ensure that the media and the public did not forget about Joey's disappearance. Joey's mother and stepfather did as many appearances as they could, and they talked about how they just wanted Joey back with them. Kathleen also added, heartbreakingly, that she often lie awake at night wondering if Joey was in pain and just having a constant feeling of desperation. And from what I've seen with cases of disappearance, the family takes a huge hit. You just want to be out 24-7 looking for your child, but you can't. All you can do is be desperate, wait, and pray that the police are handling the investigation well. And because it is an active investigation, you also have to be understanding that that means you might be left in the dark about certain things for necessity. So it's a it's very taxing on the family.
2: Yeah, I honestly, I couldn't possibly imagine the feeling that that family is going through.
1: So the next avenue that investigators wanted to go down is the high school theory, like you said. Okay. It's a very simple theory. If it happened in a high school, everyone knows about it. So they wanted to question not just the people Joey was close with, but everyone who attended the same high school he did. And because Joey was very outgoing and he was a person who competed in many track events, They also wanted to question students of the schools Joey faced. So it was very well known that Joey, being so outgoing and friendly, when he and his friends would go to track meets and they, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever been to a high school track meet, but you sit around for hours. Uh, You sit around for hours, whether you're waiting for your event or you're still there and you're supporting the rest of your teammates in their events. And the more schools that attend the meets, is the longer you have to wait. Like a lot of my students, when they go to track meets, they don't return home until 11 p.m. So they're there from 4 to 11. It's very long. And, you know, teenagers, they get bored. And track is kind of a different sport than every other sport. There's not this, like, massive us versus them kind of thing. It's more like personal records, that people want to break. So there is like a camaraderie ship amongst all of the high school athletes at track events. So Joey was very well known to kind of get up and introduce himself to other high school athletes. So he had friends in all of the surrounding high schools as well as the high school he attended.
2: I mean, that's that's probably going to take a lot of time to gather All those kids that do track in all those different schools.
1: Yeah. I mean, even just interviewing every high school student that attends the high school he goes to takes a lot of time. And they do track down, they really just track down people that he was friendly with in the other schools that people of his high school said, oh, Joey knows these 10 people from this high school. Okay. So those are the people they kind of track down while interviewing all of these teenagers, the investigators hear the rumblings of a very dark rumor that, if true, would explain Joey's disappearance. Now, even though this is just a high school rumor, they have to find out about this, and it's the first lead that they had had in weeks, so they pursue it. The rumor was that Joey had sold some kids bad drugs. What these drugs ranged from was... Like some people said it was pot. Others said it was acid. So the investigators don't know necessarily what the drug was that Joey, the bad drug that Joey sold to these kids, but it ranged from pot to acid. The most reliable source that investigators had told them that he had heard about these rumors and what happened to Joey secondhand, which if that's your most reliable witness, it's pretty shaky. But he said he had overheard others at his school saying that they had been the ones to kill Joey because Joey had sold them bad drugs. They said they gave him what he had coming and that they wanted payback, basically. He overheard them saying at a party that they had taken Joey out into the woods after abducting him that night. They then handcuffed him to a tree and shot his kneecaps. They then left him out in the woods to die.
2: It sounds like these kids might have been listening to too, or watching too much of like a casino or like some kind of gangster movie.
1: Yeah, it does sound you a know, like You know, to that.
2: handcuff you and to shoot you with, you know, in your kneecaps. It's very dramatized. But there could be some truth in, th- in that.
1: There could be some truth in it. At first when I heard it, I was like, whoa, this is pretty cold hearted you know, like kind of gangster move for like high school students that are dealing with pot or even if it was acid. But, you know, through the cases we've covered, we've seen high school students do some pretty horrific things. That's true, too. So I thought it was interesting that the rumors went that way. And, you know, the police, I believe, took a really good direction in all of this. So the woods that surrounded Joey's house and the path that he would have taken to meet his friends is most likely where this would have occurred. So they do a second search of the woods and this time they're looking for possible human remains that were still most likely handcuffed to a tree, but nothing was found. And that's kind of what they thought. These are just rumors, but they have to investigate every Avenue. It seemed that the story they had just heard might have been the rumor mills working overtime. But the implication of this rumor, I think, changes things up for the investigators. Because before we were operating on the belief that Joey was this perfect boy. And in talking to all the kids his age, they realized that, yes, he's still perfect to his family, of course. You know, that's how they build him up. I mean, it's his mom or his siblings. He is an amazing boy. But at the same time, he's still a 15-year-old boy. A 15-year-old boy who did what all kids in isolated areas do. They get together, they drink, they smoke in the woods, and maybe, like the rumor mill implied, and you did earlier, something happened involving drugs. Or he was just wrong place, wrong time.
2: Yeah. I think that that's where I'm leaning towards that there, are, there has to be some truth in that wild and outlandish story. But I think there is some truth to that. So me being an investigator, let's say, after hearing everything from the high school, the first thing that I'm going to do, the first two things I'm going to do, because they kind of go with each other, is I am going to go into that woods um, and look to see if I can find anything. Second, I'm going to go talk to his two friends again that were waiting for him that night. Okay. okay. I also, I'm going to go back to that fort-looking thing, and I'm also going to look behind that kid's house.
1: Okay. Oh, the where, the friend?
2: Yeah, the, oh, I don't know. Daniel uh, that lived uh, 100 yards away. Yes, because mm-hmm. that's where the fort was. Okay. So it's still 100 yards. I You know, I would look everywhere and talk to both of those friends because just like we said about the brother, that he was the last one to speak to him that night, you could say the same thing about... The two friends. They were the last ones that knew where he would go and where he would be.
1: And they're the people that also know him the best. Right. I mean, your two best friends in high school know everything about
2: you. And it goes back to what I said earlier. Joey, and this is most kids, they're going to go to their comfort zone. Like when we were talking about how he might have got took a ride with the other guy, no way. He is going to go where he thinks he's comfortable.
1: If he was trying to get away. If he
2: was trying to get away. So, I don't know. I think that we need to talk to those two kids again and really scope out that entire area because maybe it's not tied to a tree, but maybe it's buried somewhere by the fort.
1: No, I agree. I agree with you. So,
2: that needs to be done. Those one and two. Those two things need to be done, like, now.
1: Okay. Well, at this time, the family is still participating in a lot of interviews, and they were successful in bringing Joey's case to the national news. But sometimes that hinders investigations more than it helps. And because they reached such a wide audience, tips and sightings came pouring in from around the country. And investigating all of these sightings and tips takes time, resources, both of which were wearing thin as time goes on. You know, and there's no new leads in a case. This also took a toll on the family, too. They learned early on to not get excited about like a tip of a sighting or anything until it's really been confirmed and there were sightings from canada to delaware all over the midwest like it was wild and investigators they had to follow up on all of these tips that's i mean it took so much time
2: yeah it kind of leads you to have to spread the resources out a little too thin and
1: resources you don't really have so it sucks yeah okay so let's take a break here to talk about our final sponsor of the show
0: Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: All right, let's get back to the show. And just like happens in too many disappearances, weeks turn into months, and months turn into a year, and it seemed like the case was getting cold. On the one-year anniversary of Joey's disappearance, his family and his two best friends, the ones he was supposed to meet up with in the woods that night, held a vigil for him. Most of the town gathered to remember Joey and keep the search for him alive while his friends and family continued to cry for his loss, all of them holding on to each other for comfort. In an interview his sister Emily gave, she stated that her life was split in half. There was before Joey's disappearance and after. And after was just never the same. The family never truly recovered. And that is how it kind of works, right, with all these situations. Someone goes missing and a town rallies around the family and aids in the search. But after a while, the assistance dwindles, as does the investigation. And life goes on for the rest of the world in this small town. The missing member of the community becomes someone they think about every so often. While the family that suffered the loss is watching everyone go on with their life. Meanwhile, they have this massive, empty hole in the center of their family and it's hard and then and then as small towns go that family kind of becomes like they become pariahs like oh that's the martin family and they're kind of treated with kick gloves and
2: it's unfortunate i think the worst part and this is how i view it is like you know years are going to go by let's say and you're going to have photo albums to look through and then you kind of look and you're like, well, you know, he's been gone years or whatever, and now he's like missing in every photo album, and it's like hard to like. You have to go back to, to remember f- to him. remember him. You got to go back to where you know he where he was in photos, and I think that's probably the hardest thing to to like get get your mind around and to like watch and to go through it, because in every new thing he's missing everything, right.
1: and you're and you're you are treated so differently, and and you have to watch the rest of the town go on as if you're not screaming inside all the time. And that's how I feel like Joey's family felt a little bit in this small town. Because something's not similar. I mean, I guess it's the same with deaths as well, right? When I was in high school, I mean, I was a, a sophomore in high school. A girl who had graduated the year before, she went on to go to... Uh, college in new jersey but the first day that she went to college there was an accident in the bathtub and she hit her head and she died the first day of college oh my god and i just remember how devastating that was that first day of school when they and i mean that's when we found out that she had passed away and there was actually an announcement about it uh, about remembering her and I remember everyone was really affected by it. I remember kids, like, were falling down on the ground crying. And moving forward, her family was treated so differently. And you kind of feel so bad about it now looking forward, but no one knew how to handle it. Right. Like, her mom was the um, – she always worked at, like, the checkout counter at, like, the AMP, which is, like, a, a grocery store chain up here that I wish still exists.
2: Yeah, they're no longer.
1: But she – and I remember my mom would say, like, like when I was out shopping with my mom, she wouldn't want to go to her checkout line because she didn't want her to feel bad that I was with my mom. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the town always kind of treated her that way. Like, everyone felt so bad for her because they truly do, but you don't know what to do with that. And you also don't want them to feel weird their whole lives and be remembered for it every second, but they are.
2: Yeah, it's a really weird situation to have to, you know, deal with
1: and Uh, in both situations so i don't think it's necessarily like the town doesn't care anymore it's just that it's difficult disappearances and and i think disappearances are it's even harder because everything's so unknown
2: yeah and and truly like you know people do have to like i don't want to say it this way but you know the whole town has to move on like unfortunately like like you know yeah of course and that sucks because You almost just don't want to lose hope and you don't want to, you know, you just want to get out of this hell that you're in. But, you know, time does sometimes help a little. Does. Not always.
1: Well, with disappearances, it's kind of hard because as time goes on, you're like, I'm never going to get the answers. True. So I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and I'm going to talk about 62-year-old George Allison, who was a resident of New York City, but... Like so many who live in the hustle and bustle of the city life, he wanted calm on the weekends. So to do this, he would retreat to his weekend home in Samsonville, New York, a town that's very close to Kerhonkson. In August of 1977, just 17 months after the disappearance of Joey Martin, one morning, George Allison heard noise at the front of his house. When he went out to look at what was going on, he realized there was a man standing outside of his car, trying to break in. Allison approached his vehicle and called out to the man. What he did not know was the man who was trying to break into his car was armed. Allison raised his voice to the young man and said, get away from my car. The man stopped messing with the door of the car and raised a rifle. Without an exchange of words, the assailant shot George Allison twice with the shotgun, killing him. To get away, the man stole the car that he'd been trying to get into and drove away. Now, this could have been the perfect crime. There was no clue as to who the assailant was. The only piece of evidence was a bullet left at the scene. And two thirty 30-odd six-shell casings. And, of course, the fact that the car was missing. But if the man would have ditched the gun in the car, he quite possibly could have gotten away with all of it. That's all he had to do. Okay. But he didn't. And two days after the shooting, the car was spotted and the state troopers were called. The person who was driving the car was arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. While searching the vehicle, they found the rifle in the trunk, a rifle that would later be matched with the shots at the scene.
2: Oh my God. I okay.
1: <laughs> and not only did they have overwhelming evidence against the driver, they also had a confession. The young man confessed to the murder and the fact that he stole the car. Now, you've. You know who the shooter is. I do. Can you guess? You've met him as a character in this story
2: uh i mean uh is it one of the two friends yes of joey
1: yep it was 17 year old daniel malik the friend of joey martin okay daniel said that he needed a car and that was why he did what he did but it was asked of him why he had to kill george allison but it was asked of him why he had to kill george allison and for that he didn't have an answer but the state police also knew who Daniel was. They had questioned him four times in the connection of the disappearance with Joey to ask him what he knew, what had gone down that night. But he had just killed someone. If he was capable of this now, was he also capable of the same violence a year and a half prior? So they asked him questions again about the disappearance of his best friend. Now, this could go two total, two directions. directions either his life fell apart after the disappearance of his friend because he took it badly or he was capable of it himself
2: i think he's capable of it himself because think about how easy that was for him to pull that trigger twice yeah right with no exchange of words at all he no, was I just agree able with to you. do that so there's this underlying you know deep rooted anger in Aggression. this in this kid yeah There has to be.
1: So Daniel said that he knew nothing about the disappearance of Joey. He would never do that. He insisted that he had told them everything he knew about Joey that night. Now this murder, the murder of George Allison, also rocks the community because nothing violent or crime-related ever happened in that area. And now within two years, a 15-year-old boy goes missing and a man has been killed. And Daniel Malik has been involved with both. So local media got swept up in this fact and reported the murder of George Allison basically as a clue into the disappearance of Joey, which is sad as well, because a man lost his life. And in doing all my research in this case, it's been incredibly difficult to find any information about George Allison. Um, He's really just a sentence, which is so sad. And... Joey's mother was questioned, obviously, about Malik's confession of this murder because of how it was being reported. And Kathleen is going to say that she didn't believe that Daniel had anything to do with what happened to Joey because they were best friends. And truly, Daniel and Alex had consistently been there for the family afterwards. So. For what he had done to George Allison, Daniel Malik was sentenced to 20 years to life.
2: Okay. I mean, I mean, honestly. He got punished for it. Yeah.
1: So over the next nine years, over the next nine years, there would be no new information gained on the disappearance of Joey Martin. It had become a cold case. And as the years went on, detectives that worked the case rotated. There were leads, but they were few and far between. The most noteworthy was a call that came in from a teacher in Maine who swore that Joey was a student in one of her classes, a student that had just been moved to the district. And this wasn't the case. Years later, Kathleen was asked if she wanted to legally declare her son dead. Because seven years had passed. But she said she didn't want to go forward with that because she didn't want to deal with the reality that Joey might be dead. Like she wanted to keep him alive in her mind. Yeah. But in November of 2007, a trooper by the name of Joey Sorigliano got promoted to the Bureau of Criminal Investigation for the state police. And his first assignment was to cold cases, which meant that he had been assigned the case of Joey Martin. He worked very hard to acclimate himself into the details of the case and the family. So Rigliano believed that Joey was no longer alive based on the fact that he had truly not been spotted anywhere and there was no activity with his social security number. Now, this is something that's really, really interesting here. Okay. Remember how you said if you were the investigator, you would go back and look at everything, like look in the woods, look at the fort, and you'd want to talk to the two friends again? Yeah. That is exactly what Cerigliano does. Seriously? Exactly what he does. I
2: mean, it's the best thing that you could do, right? Yeah. When there's no leads, you have to go and check that.
1: Right. So the investigator went back, Dirk or Hogson, to travel the 1.5 miles it would have taken Joey to get from his home to the destination, which was the crossroads. He also thought it was possible that the teen, knowing he was late, could have taken a shortcut path through the woods. So he even went back to search the shortcut paths and he went to the fort that the teens had made. And surprisingly, it was still there. He searched it all and found nothing. And I don't think he really expected to find anything, but he felt like if I'm investigating this case, I need to have a concept of the area And the traveling distance and what it looked like. So that's kind of why he returned to the scene. And the next thing he did was read through all the old interviews. Like he does want to speak to everyone where he thinks like, okay, red flags have popped up. But he first has to read through all the old interviews first. And in reading the old interviews, he finds some red flags. In statements made by Joey's best friends, nothing big. Imperceptible, actually. But Cerigliano caught on and thought that although it was a long shot, he might be on to something. In his interview with investigators, Alex Barsky said, I went home and I immediately went to bed. Cerigliano found this odd, like a practice statement or something or someone trying to prove an alibi. A teenage boy would just say, I went home and I went to bed. Right? No, he went to he went home and he went to bed immediately. So that's like him saying, like, I went to bed immediately, wasn't me, couldn't have been me, kind of thing. You know what I mean?
2: No, yeah, I I get that. It's a little
1: bit of a stretch. It is. A little bit. But it was something that he found interesting. And then in an interview with Daniel Malik, he saw that Malik said, We were all on foot. Well, If it had only been him and Alex, then why would he say we were all on foot? Wouldn't he just say we, not we were all, or me and Alex, or if he's got a good English teacher, Alex and I, like why would he say it like that? Now don't get me wrong. Sir did not think these were admissions of guilt, but they were odd. A crack that he wanted to pick at.
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, think about it. If you're... You're actively going back and sifting through everything. You are going to have a magnifying glass on every single one of those like little details. Even if it sounds so stupid to us, he's going to make sure that he ha- he's like zoomed in on this. A hundred percent. Anything that could cause any little, even a speck of doubt, he's going to look at it.
1: I completely agree with you. So seven years after Joey's disappearance, 22-year-old Alex Barsky lived in Brooklyn. He was picked up by the state police and given a ride back to his hometown to be questioned one more time about the disappearance of his best friend seven years before. It sounds like the beginning to, like, a really good Netflix show. Right? It does. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Um, so Rigliano placed photos of Joey on the table in front of Alex. Alex asked if Joey was still missing. And Sirigliano so told him that Joey was dead. And immediately Alex became red and flustered. And he asked what had happened. So asked him what had happened. And Alex proceeded to tell the same story that he had 12 years ago. Alex was then asked to take a polygraph test, which he agreed to do. He failed it miserably. Now, we all know that polygraph tests are unreliable in so many ways. But one thing that they're used to do is to detect the nervousness of the person in the room. And it's clear that Alex Barsky is very nervous about something. And that's why this test has been failed. So when confronted with this, the failing of the polygraph test, he seemed like he was on the verge of wanting to say something, to tell the investigator something. But each time he was just about to kind of be broken, he would stop and ask to go to the bathroom. And because, like, Sir Rigliano had to play this well because Alex Barsky's not under arrest, so he doesn't want to scare him away. So he does, like, say, like, okay, yeah, go to the bathroom. Like, he's trying to be good with him, so he doesn't leave. Right. But at the same time, he's going to subtly keep the pressure on. He told Alex it would give him so much relief to come clean, and it would help the family, the family that needed answers. Now, it took time— but 13 hours into the interrogation, a 12-year-old secret spilled when Alex desperately said to the investigators, what if I can't get you the body?
2: What? Ah, oh, okay. All right. This is insane, but mm-hmm. okay.
1: He was ensured that they would be able to work with whatever they gave him. And Alex let it all out. He said that on March 25th, 1996, he and his friend, Daniel Malik, had killed Joey Martin.
2: Wait, okay, okay. it's going to
1: get even, you're going to, like, be basking <laughs> in your own glory right now.
2: Oh, oh, okay.
1: They had planned it. In the six months before the murder, they believed that Joey had stolen money and pot from Daniel.
2: Oh, my God. <laughs> That's crazy.
1: You literally nailed it.
2: I, I know. I know.
1: As you're saying it, I'm finding it so hard to like, I'm like, damn it. Stop figuring it out halfway <laughs> through the goddamn
2: podcast. I'm telling you. I Once the drugs were involved, I knew it.
1: Yeah. It, it complicates things.
2: It does. So
1: the plan had been for the three of them to meet at the intersection of Schwabie Turnpike and Samsonville Road and then head to the fort, which was located only 100 yards from Daniel's house. Here, Alex said, the plan was not to kill Joey, but to hurt him, to get back at him for what he did. He said they only intended to hurt him. Alex said they had gotten beer and pot earlier that day from Christopher Brown, and that Joey did, in fact, meet up with them at the intersection at 1045.
2: Okay. So it is within that hour time span. Okay.
1: So from there, they headed into the woods, and arrived at the fort around 11 p.m. For a while, they hung out, they drank beers, and they were smoking pot from a pipe. At one point in the night, Joey had knelt down to block the wind so he could light up the pipe. And when he did that, Daniel swung a two-foot-long steel pipe at him with great force, and it hit him on the side of the head. Daniel then gave the pipe to Alex to use. Alex said he hit Joey twice in the legs and gave the pipe back to Daniel, who hit him another two times in his upper body. It is unclear what, you know, hit, killed him, but when they went to check if he was breathing, they realized he was no longer breathing. We also will never know if that's the true story. I think maybe in retrospect, Alex is trying to alleviate some guilt from himself or alleviate the both of them from the, the brutality that they showed that night. But I feel like it had to have been more than that, but we'll never know because now at this point, 12 years have passed and Joey's remains will only be bones.
2: Right. I mean, that's a good point, right? We don't know which strike killed him i would have to or say Or he
1: there's no way that he was only hit five times
2: i yeah i mean unless that first shot to the head like the hit first i'm not bad. shot i'm sorry the first hit to the head like knocked him out yeah no it's a possibility totally like, yeah i mean it's possible i mean people have slipped and you know they slip and fall and lights out so right. it's it's very possible getting hit in the back of your head that you can die yeah this
1: side But that too.
2: side of the head. Yeah. You know, yeah. Either it's anything to do with your head is pretty intense. Yes.
1: So they realized quickly that Joey was no longer breathing. They wrapped him in a blanket and placed Joey in a wheelbarrow and moved him anywhere between 50 and 100 yards away from the fort. Daniel told Alex that he would take care of the rest. And then the two went to a nearby quarry where they drank beer and discussed what to do next. The comet visible overhead. Oh, it's like eerie, right? They agreed that their story was going to be that Joey just never showed up that night. And according to Alex, Daniel told him that he had to keep his mouth shut or he would be next. Then the two went to school the next day as if nothing happened. And they were first tested with their story when Joey's brother, Bill, asked where he was when they got on the bus. And that's when the lies began.
2: It's pretty crazy.
1: Serigliano and other investigators went back into the woods with Alex Barsky so he could show them where they had left Joey Martin's body. In interviews, Sirigliano said that he walked and searched for a long time with Alex Barsky, And he began to think that the man was lying to him because it seemed like he couldn't get his bearings in the woods. But eventually they came upon a rock overhang. There, he said. And beneath the boulder, they found a tattered blanket. It had been the one that Joey had been wrapped in all those years ago. But there was no human remains in it. And that was when Alex came clean the second part of his secret
2: what yeah okay there's more to this there's more okay
1: he said that back in 2002 the winter of 2002 he specifically said he returned back to the site by taking a taxi from brooklyn up to ulster county he collected the bones into black plastic bags and then he took a taxi back to the city where he then instructed the taxi cab driver to stop at random dumpsters throughout the city. And he, like, slowly got rid of the remains of Joey Martin.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Jeez.
1: So this was highly disappointing because Joey's body would never be able to be recovered. And the Martin Lightstone family would never be able to put their son to rest. But it also meant that it would be very hard to prosecute Daniel Malik without a body. Because according to New York state law, you cannot be charged with a crime just because somebody said you did it. There has to be corroborating evidence. Right. So if they don't have corroborating evidence from what Alex Barsky is saying, Daniel Malik cannot be charged.
2: Okay, but wouldn't the blanket, the tattered blanket, have DNA evidence on it that they could test, even though there's no bones? They hope so. Okay.
1: But the thing is, it's been exposed to the elements for a very long time. Okay. But if there's blood, it, it should still be on the blanket. Yeah. Luckily, for, for what I think is the first time in this whole investigation, they were in luck. It seemed that Alex had not successfully removed all of the bones from the site of the burial. Around the blanket, they found fragments of bones and teeth that were able to be tested. It was Joey Martin. Alex Barsky revealed that Daniel had actually, after he went to the site in 2002, Daniel wanted him to go back again to see if they had gotten everything. Okay. So it seems like they're in, like, even though Daniel is in jail, he and Alex Barsky are still in communication about covering up this crime. So... It was them. The fallen three musketeers. A fifteen year old boy was murdered by those he trusted over suspicions about a few grams of pot and some money. And you know what's interesting here? It's very similar to the high school rumors.
2: Yeah, well and that's why I said, you know, maybe it's you know, no one's getting shot in their kneecaps, handcuffed to a tree. But But there was truth in that elaborate story.
1: Isn't that interesting,
2: yeah, because you know what? they probably they probably said stuff, oh, yeah, but there's people no thought way... they would never act on it, you know,
1: there's no way that one of those two boys didn't say anything, and then over time, the rumor mill, that's what happens to the story, right. You see what I'm saying, yeah, so. One of them told, and I'm assuming that it was Alex Barsky. Seems to be the weaker of the two. Yeah. Daniel Malik seems to be more of the the planner, the malicious one. Somebody told, two yep. people can only keep a secret if one of them is dead.
2: It's true. It's
1: a good, pretty little liars reference there too. <laughs> also has to do with high school. I yeah. see. You just can't. It doesn't. Yeah. So there's just something so ominous about this whole case right the appearance of the comet converging with the disappearance and murder of a boy it shows that even those we trust and, and we rely on especially you know during your high school years when you feel so misunderstood by your parents and your family you really do trust your friends more than your family at that t- at that point in your life you know because you're going through it all. And they betray you like this. So it, it's, uh, it's very sad. It is. Alex Barsky pled guilty to first degree manslaughter. And because he agreed to cooperate and testify, he was sentenced only to three to ten years. He made two appeals, um, one in 2011 and the other in 2013, but both were denied. Alex was released from Groveland Correctional Facility on September 2nd, 2014.
2: Yeah. He that's... served,
1: he did serve all of his time except like six months. Like he was let go six months early for good behavior.
2: I mean, it's, it's kind of, this, the sentencing here and like based on what he did is a little odd here. Yeah. But if, well, I'll explain it to you this way, right? He told, he was the one. That cooperated with police. Mm-hmm. If the other kid didn't shoot that guy dead and steal his car, it could have went the other way.
1: hundred percent. Okay,
2: because they obviously they know the same thing. They've both they both took part in this. Now we don't know. Like he you said also earlier.
1: never intended to tell.
2: Right. Didn't want to tell. And look what look what took place after years after the the trying to hide the evidence, moving it into the city. Like mm-hmm. there were a lot of things that he did that that's even. Like, no, I don't want to say worse than murder, but it's bad. It's terrible. You're tampering with evidence. You're tampering with an investigation. It's it's horrible what you're doing, uh, even after you killed him. now, And we don't even know who really struck him first. Right. We don't know who did what. Did Alex really only hit him in the legs? What did he do?
1: We don't know because, like you said, Alex is the one who has the advantage. And right, we don't exactly. know what happened that night.
2: And that's why anybody questioning, well, why would he? Or how brutal that attack is. Right.
1: We haven't even been able to analyze the bones to see if anything was broken or there was any hits. Like, we are just going on the word of Alex Barsky, who could be trying to keep some of their dignity, quote-unquote, alive. But that attack, I think, was worse than what he said.
2: Of course. Of course it was. There's no way. Listen, do you realize how hard it is to like, physically break someone else's bones? If that's the case, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. you know, regardless, they still took part in this, and Alex benefited from talking, and the fact that the other kid was already in prison. Right. It was just, it lined up perfectly for him to be able to do this. Very convenient. And we're never gonna know what really happened. At you know at that at shack, the fort at the fort
1: yeah. Well, Daniel Malik was convicted of second degree murder. And was sentenced to an additional 15 years to life. So now he's facing basically 35 years to life. Malik has made several appeals based on his two convictions. And all have been denied. The most recent being in May of 2021. And it's sad here because the family of Joey Martin, although they finally got answers, they were never given a body that they could bury. And I just do feel terrible for them, but also happy that they finally have answers and the people that did this, you know, were held responsible to some degree.
2: Yeah. And you know what? Even though, like, people are, I'm sure there are going to be people that are going to say they should have got more time, let's say, or whatever, I would agree with you, but Mm -hmm. that's my opinion. But this is the thing. Those two were malicious people that had very, very, like, I don't know, misguided childhoods. I don't know.
1: To do that is very cold-hearted. To
2: do what you did. To your best friend. To your friend. And then a year later, go to their vigil, lie to that family. I'm glad you brought that up. Do all these things. And then even after you killed this kid and years go by – you, uh, Alex does what he does like everything everything that these two have done and then for the other kid to go kill that old man for no reason right it's 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 absurd they're it's not absurd. good people no yeah. no you can't be a good person and do everything that you did and, then and it doesn't there doesn't tell. seem to be any remorse either at all I'm sorry they, they're just saving face to make sure that they're not in prison yeah. for life right that's all that that is but there's no, you know, remorse there at all. You literally literally kept a family waiting for years. For you, twelve years. You knew what you did. You should have just you should have just fessed it up earlier.
1: I know. That's sad. And that's why I'm surprised that well, he got the manslaughter because he talked.
2: Right. Yeah. Right.
1: All right. So, before we go, we have all of these Patreon supporters to name and there's so many of them and we are so grateful for all of you and we hope you're enjoying all of the bonus episodes that you're getting and at the end of the patreon supporters list we think we have even though we're already on episode 125 it's like so funny we think we have a sign off that we're going to start using because everyone has said bye guys is not enough and we kind of agree.
2: We agree. We I don't even agree. try to change it up. I've been saying "take care, guys."
1: Oh, that's really
2: good. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing that. But yeah, for we've, how many years we've been doing this? now? Five years. We just don't know what to say to you guys because you know, if it was up to us, we would just keep going. Yes, it would, it, it, we would. We would don't know how to ramble
1: on forever. We do not know how to edit end it. It's always awkward. Well,
2: sometimes r- we don't know how to edit it, but we, yeah. you know what I mean. <laughs> like it's oh. Anyway, so we think
1: we have a good sign off for you, but we'll do it after we list all of our amazing Patreon supporters.
2: That sounds like a good idea.
1: So we just want to say thank you to Chris Hayek, Kerry Walsh, Dixie Bishop, Alicia Burke, Sam Bibb, Chan Turn, Tianti, Michelle Rosenberg, Tanya Collins, Hilda Upt Her Pledge, Christopher Bell, Amy Shore. Shonda Carter, Lily Burke, Robin Johnson, Belle Allen, J.B., Elizabeth, Florencia Valle-Miller, Carrie DeSormo, Zoe Miles, Jen Miller, Diana Krukberg, Alija, Louisa Loyacano, Leah, Katie Retson, Nathan, Mags Bags, Anne Dooley, Taya Mackle, Kim, Therese Black, Marimar Bustamante, Summer Roberts, Jody Stevenson, Madeline Boyd, Fran Andrews, Thomas Naganuma, Erica Robinson, Rebecca Calhoun, Ashley Renee Uptur Pledge, Gemma Kayani, Zachariah Cooley, Ashley Chitwood, Hannah Osborne to her pledge and Natasha Mehta. So yesterday, guys, I was watching one of the uh, arguably it has been lost to the ether that is 90s thrillers. One of the best movies from that time period as a thriller copycat with Sigourney Weaver. Such a good serial killer movie if you have not seen it. But as I was watching it. And it was, it's on in the background as I was finishing this episode, because that's what I do. That's so weird of me. I watch serial killer movies as I'm writing my true crime podcast, but to each their own. I heard Sigourney Weaver as she, well, in this movie, she plays a criminal profiler for the FBI, whose area of expertise is serial killers. And as she's signing autographs to people and they're walking away, she calls out to them, and don't park next to Vans. And I was like, oh my God. And I called John and I'm like, John, that's the perfect sign. I mean, it's five years late, but like, that's our sign off. That's perfect.
2: (laughs) I I thought it was pretty cool.
1: But we are late. Can we start a different sign off three, well, five years in? Sure. Right? We can
2: do what we want, right?
1: I guess. This is our podcast. Yeah. Okay. So, that will be our sign-off. We will still say, bye guys, but then we will end it with, and don't park next to Van's.